This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. Good morning, Memphis. You're listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR Radio 91.7 FM. Meanwhile in Memphis is a program dedicated to conversations that celebrate the organizations, initiatives, and people that are shaping Memphis for the better. Meanwhile in Memphis is brought to you by New Memphis, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to develop, activate, and retain the city's most important resource, its people. Your hosts today are me, Rebecca Daly, and my colleague, Jamie Bowler-Raup. Hey, it's me. (laughs) So today we are continuing a conversation that we started the other week with Out Memphis and Friends for All, formerly known as Friends for Life, earlier this month. And uh, we're talking with local leaders about the many ways in which recent anti-LGBTQIA plus legislation passed in Nashville will impact our communities. We're We'll also share ways in which you, the listener, can get involved and support local communities that will be impacted the most by these decisions. Um, So, you know, in order to provide a more detailed picture of the landscape, we encourage you to go back and listen to our episode with Jenna Dunn, Anu Ayer, and Krista Wright there, and we'll link that in our show notes for your convenience. So, we have invited Phyllis Lewis and Shahin Sami into the studio today to share their expertise and the work they're doing to ensure that Memphis stays an inclusive, welcoming city for all people. Phyllis Lewis is the founder and CEO of Love Doesn't Hurt 901. Love Doesn't Hurt 901 helps to provide assistance to victims of domestic and sexual violence in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community to provide emergency shelter, transportation, food, clothing, and relocation for those in the Shelby County area. Through the assistance of their partner agencies, they have been able to reach out and educate those in the community of the impact that domestic violence has taken on the Mid-South. They also hold an annual event to help fund the Love Doesn't Hurt Fund, but donations can also be given at any time to help assist their clients. And Shahin Sami is the Shelby County Committee Chair of the Tennessee Equality Project, which is a volunteer role. He currently works as an Associate Director of Research at a local university, helping investigate how wearable sensing platforms can inform real-time, real-world health interventions. His previous research experience investigated how early childhood experiences shape school readiness and later academic achievement among students in Memphis and Shelby County, Tennessee. Shahin is a native Memphian and his volunteer work with Tennessee Equality Project and other advocacy organizations began in 2010. And he's been included in the Memphis Bus Writers Union and is also a graduate of the new Memphis Fellows Program and University of Memphis Masters of Public Health. Shall we welcome our guests? Yeah. Hello, welcome. Hello. Hello. How's it going, y'all? It's going great. How are you? Uh, you know, I, I can't complain. It's, it's been a pretty good morning so far. Awesome, awesome. Can good you day. so we're super excited about this conversation and so excited that y'all are here with us in the studio today. Um, could you just start by introducing yourselves? Tell us who you are, where do you work, what do you do, what's your organization do, et cetera? Sure. Um, I'll go first. My name is Phyllis Lewis, pronoun she, her, and I am the CEO of Love Doesn't Hurt, which is a nonprofit organization located here in Memphis, Shelby County. And we help to provide crisis intervention to victims of crime in the LGBTQ plus community, while also um, increasing cultural humility throughout Shelby County. Great. Welcome. Thanks. I'm Shahin Sami, he, him pronouns, and I volunteer as the Shelby County Committee Chair for the Tennessee Equality Project, a statewide organization focusing on sound public policy for the LGBTQ community. 
great. That's good stuff. So you guys uh, do work that touches the same communities, but from different angles. So I'm really excited to hear from each of you the ways that uh, your work is shaping our community. Are you excited, Jamie? I'm pumped. I'm very excited. Let's dig into it. Yay. So um, this kind of connects to a previous conversation that we had recently with Out Memphis and Friends for All, formerly Friends for Life. It just changed their name. Um, So can you talk a little bit about how your work intersects and or, you know, differs from their work? What's that Venn diagram? I would say for us, um, we work very closely with the Tennessee Equality Project because how the laws um, are carried out do impact the treatment of the people that we work with. And so if you have discriminatory laws that are put into effect, then that then is going to cause more hostility to be pushed towards the individuals of the LGBTQ plus community, which means there is going to potentially be an increase of victimization in that. And so with the work that we do doing the crisis intervention piece and working with individuals that have been a victim of a crime, it behooves us to know like what is coming through the pipeline. So that way, not only can we prepare ourselves, but also empower others to know what is coming to as well um, to help empower them to use their voices. Yeah, that's really exactly it, that when these bills get introduced, even before they're debated or become law, they begin to set a tone in our state, in our community, even across our country. And that can have real and devastating impacts on people's day-to-day lives. That increases the amount of stigma that's out there. That increases the amount of threats and indeed also physical violence that can take place. And when these bills get introduced, again, even before even if they don't become law, they can create real and chilling effects. And again, they can cause people to be stigmatized and harmed. And that impacts Phyllis's work, impacts all of our work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've talked about this in, in a few of our recent episodes about the way that it, it impacts the livability and lovability of our city. Mm-hmm. Um, Phyllis, you mentioned that you work in uh, providing some crisis intervention services. What does that look like? So for us, when we have individuals that come to us, they kind of give us a background as to what they have experienced, um, what type of violence or trauma they've experienced. And in doing that, we do kind of a needs assessment in figuring out where are the gaps for them and trying to help connect them to resources and supportive services that are unique and individualized to their, not only their identities, but also their orientations too as well. And working with different community partners that are going to provide a space that is welcoming and affirming. Now for us in-house, we, um, do emergency housing as well as we have a food pantry and we provide like things like bus passes and hygiene kits, but things that we don't provide in-house, we make sure that the partners that we are sending individuals to have been trained either by us or by an outside entity. So that way they have the tools that they need in order to provide supportive care for our clients. Awesome. That's incredible work. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very grateful to have you in the community. Um, Shahin, you mentioned these bills, mm-hmm. um, and for anyone who's listening who maybe isn't as plugged in to what's going on in Nashville, can you mention, and both of you can feel free to jump in on this, what bills have been passed that impact your work and our communities? What Are there things still in the works coming down the the pipeline, you know, what what do we need to be aware of? Absolutely. Well, sadly, in 
this country, Tennessee, has led the nation in the numbers of bills that are discriminatory, directly discriminatory or anti-LGBTQ. So these are bills that run the gamut of all kinds of different parts or facets of our lives that are not covered by, say, marriage equality, right? We know that was settled in 2015, but there are all kinds of other parts of our lives that include housing, access to health care that were not covered by that Supreme Court ruling and that our state is legislating. For example, we many people have heard about the quote-unquote drag ban that affects male or female impersonation mm-hmm. and bans that in some situations in public spaces. And we know that there has been a temporary restraining order as of right now on that bill, but there are <laughs> on that law, but still... Many groups, including the Orpheum, including absent friends who run our Rocky Horror Picture Show, have been scared by this bill. And I think rightfully so. Their legal status has, you know, they have uh, been concerned as to whether this impacts them, even though our own district attorney has put out very clearly what this bill does and does not affect. It's a chilling effect. And that kind of de facto effect of such a bill or a law is very damaging to our community because when people are afraid to come into the community to be their true and authentic selves, regardless of what the law may or may not actually say, it's the perception of that law that can cause immense harm. We've seen a bill that was signed into law that affects access to gender-affirming care for transgender youth, which is causing many of our professionals of families of all types to question whether Tennessee is a place where they can raise their children, where they can have a safe family, and that impacts whether they're going to stay here, whether they're going to be part of our businesses, whether they're going to be part of our economic development, or whether they're going to take that somewhere else. In fact, there are a number of other bills that may be, by the time people hear this podcast, uh, the legislative session may be over, it may have ended, but there may be other things that people can do to petition the governor to potentially veto those bills. Regardless of where we stand by the time this airs, it's very important that people be active to keep the temperature and the heat on their elected officials to let them know that these kinds of bills that marginalize and damage our community are not good for our state and are not good for our economics. Yeah, yeah. And and you called these these bills, I believe you said anti- LGBTQIA+, right? Mm-hmm. You know, these are anti this community. And do you have any thoughts or reactions when you hear folks in Nashville um, just, they, they are not using that word. They deny that it is anti the community. Say, no, no, it's not anti. It has nothing to do with being anti. Like, how does that make you feel? How does that, you know, what would you have to say to that? I would say for them to walk a mile in our shoes. I would say that these bills have a real detrimental and chilling effect, and that I think that that's also duplicitous. I think that we've heard some of these same lawmakers so much to say that they would like to eradicate members of our community, or indeed our community writ large. These are the same people pushing these bills year after year, and I would really call on those same lawmakers to strongly reconsider what the consequences of those bills are and how chaotic that is, the chaos that that causes for everyone in our community, whether they identify as LGBTQIA plus or not. Yeah, absolutely. It's infuriating, especially like listening to like some of the sessions and hearing the representatives like not even have the knowledge that they need in order to make the decisions that they're making. Like they're making decisions about health care, but they're not doctors. They're making decisions about how we parent our children 
when they're not our children's parents. Um, they're trying to control how we express ourselves, how we show our art, and and how we show our identities. Like a lot of like the legislators when Shahin and Tennessee Equality Project and also other organizations went up to Nashville and tried to talk to them about like their experience with talking to trans youth, none of them were able to say that they had had a conversation with a trans youth or a parent of a trans youth, but they were making decisions that impacted this population in in our community. And so to hear that from individuals that are supposed to be representative of all people, not some, but all, um, to just tear down how people just exist is is sad. That's difficult. Um, and in in this conversation, I think we've really hit on a, a piece that knowledge is power. Um, and the more that informed that we can be is as a community, it's going to make us stronger. It's going to empower us to be more inclusive and, and working together. So, Shahan, I was hoping you could expand a little bit about uh, Tennessee Equality Project's role in this work. Uh, what are What is your organization doing? What is the work that you do day to day that's helping uh, not just locally, but clearly at the state level to um help people become better informed, but also the actions that they're able to take. Absolutely. You know, it is a multi-pronged approach. And so the first step really is the education. So we do a lot of bill monitoring. We see what bills get filed, what bills get amended, what bills are moving from week to week as they wind their way through the legislative process. And then we take that information and we're able to share it with our community. Of course, we do direct lobbying, we do direct advocacy with the elected officials, but the real value add, the real role of what we do is to connect the information with the people, right, with all of us as citizens, because as I joke with Phyllis and as I joke with everybody else, you know, they're going to see me, right? They're going to get my phone calls. They're going to get my emails. But what's more important is that they get all of our emails. They get all of our phone calls. And what we're able to do is put that week-to-week information into campaigns that make it very simple that whether people have a minute a week to send an email from, you know, our website or whether they have an hour to participate in a phone banking, or whether they have the time to go and travel up to Nashville, we're able to empower people with the knowledge of what's going on, how they can communicate, whether via email, phone, or in person, and prepare people so that they know how they can advocate with their elected officials. Because so many people are disempowered. So many people think that their elected officials are some kind of celebrity or that they know everything, and that could not be further from the truth. (laughs) They may be terrific business people or lawyers, or maybe they're not. Who knows? But they don't know everybody's lived experience. They don't know what it's like, maybe, maybe not to be a parent or to be the parent of a trans or questioning kid or to be an educator. And that's why it is so critically incumbent upon each and every one of us as citizens to reach out, to connect with the people who represent us, to share our stories. And that's what we help people to do. And you all do an amazing job. Thank you. So so (laughs) inspired by that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm just curious, um, how did each of you find your way into these roles? Uh, I guess for me, my mother um, was a victim of domestic and sexual violence, and I um, started my career off at the district attorney's office. Uh, I was there for about almost 10 years, and during my tenure there, uh, I saw the gaps when it came to victims in same-sex domestic um, violence 
related incidences and just the lack of understanding from social service providers, um, but also like attorneys too as well, and then trying to show up in those spaces and get equal treatment. And it wasn't that the individuals that were providing the services didn't want to give them equal treatment, it's that they didn't have the knowledge. They didn't know how, and they were so afraid of messing up that they just were like, kind of like standoffish about it. And so for me, um, Love Doesn't Hurt started off actually as an awareness event and was one for like the first seven years. And then uh, in 2019, we decided to make it its own independent nonprofit and increase like our educational sessions where we partner with the Tennessee Equality Project to do like voting 101. And as it gets closer to the end of the year, we do uh, Before You Leap. And in that, we talk about the legislation that's about to get ready to come through the pipeline. So that way we can tell people like what's going on. So that way they can be prepared because we understand we can't do this work alone. We have to work together. We have to help build that safety net to be able to protect the people that we serve. Here, here. I couldn't mm-hmm. have said that any better. And I think similarly, I think it was my mom that really kind of pushed me down that track. I remember that, you know, my, my mom raised me as a single mother and, uh, you know, in low income poverty situations, government assistance. And I can remember her having to advocate so ardently in order to thrive, in order to survive, in order for us to make it from month to month. And at the time, you know, as a child, I didn't really firmly and fully understand what that looked like, what the fairness issues were, you know, what the falling through the cracks looked like. And when I was in graduate school, I first became aware of the Tennessee Equality Project, I think through um, some student organizations and and their presence, you know, with um, collaborating with the student organizations. And it wasn't until I left graduate school and I was on the bus, I was uh, transit dependent for many years before I ever got my license. And seeing how unfair the bus system was in this city, I became affiliated with the Memphis Bus Riders Union. And at that point, it really became very salient, the lessons that my mom was teaching me about, unless you speak up, unless you advocate, nobody else is going to do it for you. And it's just incumbent upon us to make sure that we all have a fair crack at some vision of the American dream, at some vision of of, of the right to exist, to self-determine. And from that point, um, especially as things began to ramp up and the vitriolic things that came out of the Tennessee legislature up to, around, and following the Obergefell decision, it really impacted me to say, well, somebody's got to speak out about this. Um, Before we thank you all for sharing um, a little bit about your stories, about how you've gotten um, to do this work, um, Phyllis, I want to go back to something that you mentioned, which I think is really holds a lot of people back from being allies, which is the being too afraid of making mistakes that you don't act. Like, can you address that a little bit? And how can people overcome that fear? How can, like, how can you, if you realize that that's you or your organization is in that space, what, how do you take that next step? And I I think awareness is like the first step, right? Um, I think we are conditioned to feel like we have to know everything, Right. But we really don't. And it's okay to ask for help. Uh, And so we and that is why our mission is kind of twofold, like to do the crisis intervention piece, but also increase the cultural humility of the community, because 
we know that if we address the victimization that's happened, like that's only half of it. They still have to survive. They still have to restabilize. They still have to go out into the community. And if the community isn't a safe space for them, then they're just going to come right back um, to us. And so if we help to increase the culture humility of the community, it's going to provide a safer space for all people. And so in that, like doing the trainings that we do, we go out to organizations and train their their staff and um, overall just uh, talking about like things like gender identity and sexual orientation and how to create policies and procedures that are more inclusive. And it sometimes it's just simple things like um, making your restrooms unisex. Like when you go to someone's house, is there do they have, you know, gender <laughs> restrooms? No, no one's going to tell you like, oh, go down the hall and the ladies room is this way. And the men. no, they're going to tell you where the toilet is. So like <laughs> and so just. Like putting that into a, a way that people can be more receptive of just small things, right? Like no one's telling you to move mounds in a day, but just take small steps to help create space for others that there are spaces and rooms that there are decisions being made that they're not in. And so how can you advocate for them and show up for them in a way that holds space for them when they're not there or when they are there? Especially when they are there. Absolutely. Mm. So um, you mentioned the trainings and you both of your organizations provide trainings, right? Is yes. that correct? correct? Yes, correct. Um, well, first, can you give me a little sense of like, what is the difference between your trainings and who they're for? And and then also, like, aren't, aren't there bills coming down the pipe that could impact your training? Like, the, the whole, like, diversity and inclusion and, you know, advocacy. There are bills at the state level. No? Maybe it might just... <laughs> there, there are some bills that could affect... There's a bill in particular that's being considered this week, so uh, keep an eye out next week if you're listening, if you might need to make a call to the governor about this. There are... Um, K-12 and higher education have diversity, inclusion, implicit bias trainings that can help faculty and staff get all on the same page about where people are coming from, right? If you're dealing, especially if you're in a public setting, you're dealing with people from all walks of life. And these kinds of trainings are ways by which our faculty and staff or people who are working for and providing services with these communities, again, of all types, all races, ages, sexual orientations, etc., Again, it gets everybody on a common ground. Mm -hmm. However, we have seen with the political climate right now, the word diversity has turned into a four-letter word, which is really tragic for people who need services and may not look like everybody else. So that's one of the bills that is being considered that would ban certain implicit bias trainings in those settings. But for us, we're going to continue doing what mm -hmm. we're doing, and we're going to continue to help inform the community what's going on and how they can fight back. Great. Yeah, absolutely. And for us, I tell people language is everything, right? Um, so in, instead of like calling our trainings like diversity trainings or equity trainings, we call it awareness building, mm. right? Because awareness building can work in all facets um, of your life. And so the language that we use, it, it keeps us from being impacted. Um by some of these bills and then also like with our educational trainings like they more so fall into like life hacks so <laughs> love that and so it, it 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 
gets it where we're still able to get the information out because life hacks are necessary for everyone to mm-hmm. live like happy mm-hmm. daily lives and empower them with information that they need in order to like keep stability or reduce their chances of victimization. And that's another way that we word our educational sessions, because if we're doing like job readiness trainings, then that's going to help you from experiencing financial abuse. Because if you're able to have your own separate income, then you are less likely to be dependent on someone else. And I have to say the uh, pour into your cup training that Phyllis does is one that I tell everybody about. I've I've made that like a mantra (laughs) that I tell so many people this, whether you're a parent, you're an advocate, you're dealing with issues as, as heavy as domestic violence, you can't pour from an empty cup. I'm not gonna steal your thunder here, Phyllis, but that's one of my favorite pieces that you have taught me even as an advocate. And I'm just so grateful that you're helping teach that to the community. Yes. And we've actually, you'll be happy to know for pouring to your cup, we are actually doing it quarterly now. And so the next one will be in May and it'll be May 20th. We're partnering with Gould's um, Academy on that. And the students and the staff there have been absolutely amazing. That's awesome. I, I feel like I need that. Can I? Can I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the thing about our educational sessions is, even though our organization, our direct services, is geared towards the LGBTQ plus community, that's our direct services part. But because of our mission is increasing cultural humility, our educational sessions are open to all. Awesome. Similarly, um, we do uh, legislative advocacy trainings, our Advocacy 101, that is how do you connect with an elected official? Similarly, I was talking earlier about people don't know how to start, that issue of awareness. How do you even pick up the phone? What do you say? Who do you call? And being able to connect people with those fundamentals helps to empower them to be able to be effective advocates, whether it's in the LGBTQ space or in any space about state-level issues or local or federal issues. This kind of information is applicable all across our civic participation and applicable whether you identify in the LGBTQIA plus community or whether you do not. And they are free and open to everybody for that reason, because civic empowerment, civic engagement is just so critical for the fun- foundation and the functioning of our democracy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. And I think it's so important that, uh, to your point, you don't have to be an expert to be an advocate. I think that first step is the scariest, but the fact that you're providing resources for us to even know what that first step might look like, uh, the ripple effect of that, I think, is just almost inconceivably impactful. Um, I'm I'm really encouraged by a lot of the pieces that um, you've talked about. And, And one of the things we talk about a lot in our conversations here is... Um, the ways that we're working to build a just and inclusive community so that we can have a thriving city. Um, you know, what are some of the things that you see coming down the pike um, in, in your work day to day that are leaning toward that? What are the pieces of your work that you're celebrating that are helping our community thrive? Obviously, your day to day work, it comes with some heaviness, but I'm, I'm hopeful that there's some hope on the other side of that as well. There, There is I, I know with the work that we do, I'm seeing like a shift when it comes to like funding um, that's being geared towards like prioritizing the LGBTQ plus community and especially the trans community because they are probably the most marginalized um, out of all of us. Um, averagely, about 20 percent of them, their income level is less than ten thousand dollars a year. Um, and as all of us know, like the the cost of living, like increased by 29 percent 
um, like during the pandemic. And so if you're trying to get affordable housing, like that's very hard um, to get if you're expected to make three to four times the rent. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can cause barriers. But um, organizations like HUD, um, the city of Memphis and Shelby County have been more um, intentional about how they're shifting their their funding but also we support each other a lot um in that and that helps to amplify our voices and our missions um to be able to get the word out about the work that we're doing so that way we are able to help each other because a lot of the clients that we work with are overlapping um in some way shape or form and so the more services we can get them connected to the better quality of life um that is going to have and so for me to see those wins like that that what that is what keeps me motivated to do the work you're here that there's no one organization no one person who's going to make all of this happen it's all of us together working together trying to build a better and more just world for all of us so that we all can live and work and thrive in this community together And to see locally, Phyllis, exactly what you just said, the um, Shelby County government, even just last week, providing almost $200,000 in funding to my sister's house to help provide transitional housing. Cheers to that. Yes, that, you know, there's a disproportionate number of transgender individuals who've experienced homelessness. And to address these issues and to really see my local government, our local government, put their money where their mouths are. In amidst so much chaos coming from the state government, that gives me a lot of hope. Absolutely. To see our nonprofits working together, to see all of us, you know, bringing attention to, again, I'm going to use this word time and again, chaos that Mm -hmm. I think our state legislature has shown to the, not just the country, the entire world, to see us working together despite that has to give me hope that we can move the needle and make a better and more thriving, safer inclusive community for us all yes mm. yes indeed you're you're already kind of kind of addressing it but you know i think in in moments of chaos like this you know we always i i always wonder like why am why am i staying why do we stay here like why <laughs> right and like so i don't know if you if you why do you stay here why should our communities stay here you know what i for for me, I I get this I get asked this question a lot. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> um, mostly because I, I guess because of the work I I do, I can do it anywhere. Um, but for me, Memphis is my home. Mm. Memphis is where my people are. Um, and for me, I feel it is a disservice to my community to take the things that I've learned, those nuggets that I've gained throughout my life and throughout my career and take that and help somebody else's home thrive when I can stay here and help my my community, my friends, my family. Because for us, a lot of us in the LGBTQ plus community, our family are our friends. Um, and so for us, like, we have our chosen family, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so moving away is like leaving your family behind. And that's just something that I'm not going to let anybody like scare me away to do. Like I'm not going anywhere. That's it. That's it. I cannot imagine being forced out. Like this is my home. I was born here. I was raised here. I have my roots here. 
I've been poured into here to help thrive, and now I'm thriving and can help my community there. If I'm going to ever leave this community, it's going to be on my terms. It's not going to be because I was threatened out or pushed out. And I and I lament the idea. I understand that if, if a family and if someone isn't safe and you have to make a decision, that, that I respect that, and I always will. But I also can't help but think about my story, that as a single mom, my mom didn't have the resources to pull me out. We wouldn't have had the ability to leave. And I know there are so many countless folks in this community and across this state that are in that same boat. And we have to stay. We have to leverage our resources and our collective power to fight for all of us, but especially those families and those folks whose safety is questioned and don't have the resources or the opportunity or the option to leave. Absolutely. We're, we're all nodding vigorously here. Yeah. Um, yes. yeah. You can't see it, but yeah. I am nodding yeah. vigorously. Yeah. I'm pretty you. sure you can feel yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie and I are both uh, Memphians by birth and by mm-hmm. choice. And, and, you know, the work that we get to do here at New Memphis and seeing these connections and the folks who are putting in the work to make our community better. Um, it, it's one of the things that keeps us here. It's mm-hmm. one of the things that keeps us going day to day. And mm-hmm. um, I'm inspired by the work that both of your organizations are doing. And, and I wanted to um, lean into success a little bit. And, and Phyllis, um, the work that you're doing with Love Doesn't Hurt, what, what does success look like for your organization, not only now, but in the long term? And do you have any data that may support that narrative of success? Uh, for me, I think it's an uh, awareness thing. When I first started doing the work with Love Doesn't Hurt, um, and when I start, first started doing the research, like back in 2011, 2010, 2011, um, Memphis Shelby County had about um, between like 80 to 8,300 um, domestic violence cases, and only 213 of those were same sex. And I was like, I know 213 people have gotten into it. So the numbers obviously are off, right? But we also know that domestic violence is something that is severely underreported, right? And then you're talking about a marginalized population on top of that. And at that time, you could still be fired for being gay. So if I am in a hostile relationship, am I going to tell the police when they come there that this is my partner um no um also police reports are public record so if your abuser knows that you are not out at your work that your job is not affirming i'm going to use that to manipulate you and deter you from calling the police because Mm -hmm. the ramifications that come with that especially if you're not out to your family either then you're going to be shunned and then who else are you going to have and so for us like helping to build that awareness but also helping to grow that safety net within the first three years of us doing our awareness event the reporting increased by 256%. And so at first people were thinking, oh, it's happening more. No, it's not happening more. We it's just being, know more. Right. It's being correctly reported. And so <laughs> when, it, <laughs> when, it, when it comes to like funders, like they're looking at the need. And so if the numbers do not match the need, then the money is not poured into um, organizations to be able to provide services for um, the LGBTQ plus community through the work that we have done in working with the community partners. Now, not only does Memphis um, Police Department, but also Shelby County Police Department, both of them have LGBTQ plus liaisons, more social service providers and organizations and agencies are getting training specifically 
to build the awareness of their organizations around LGBTQ plus individuals and providing safe and inclusive spaces. And so for me, in people seeking out information to know more so that way they can do better, that for me is success. That lets me know that what we're doing and what we're putting out there and the information is it's a ripple effect. Like you were saying earlier, like we're putting it out there and it's getting out to other people that they're like, hey, this is something that we need to know in order to make sure that our people are safe and knowing that when they come into this building that they're going to be taken care of. I love that. Uh, you know, I think anytime that you're able to provide qualitative and quantitative <laughs> support for the work that you're doing it tells the biggest possible story and uh, you know I, I i think the progress that has been shown just in that little snippet you've given is very encouraging yeah it's i mean that's a huge impact i mean just having liaisons and i mean that's huge yes. um you helped understand like you helped explain a bit better how why the queer community specifically deals with some of this violence you know at a maybe a heightened level I more of a comment than a question and observation <laughs> it's just that I feel like yeah. that helps it, explain it, it it does because you're even though like things are more visible you know for the LGBTQ plus community probably more so than they have probably ever been um, in that that does not mean that everybody has the privilege to be visible there are still individuals that because of safety purposes that they do not disclose their gender identities or their sexual orientations to prevent themselves from being harmed as a result of it. Um, we think of Tennessee like Tennessee is a huge state, right? We have 95 counties, but only four of them are somewhat progressive, depending on like what part of the city you're in and so in that that means that there are 94 counties that are probably not safe spaces um for people to be um and so as like a lot of the legislation was coming down the the pipeline and and my i myself also am a drag entertainer and so like talking to some of my other fellow entertainers as we were talking because some of us travel um to do mm -hmm. some of the shows and so if i'm doing a show that's in jackson i have to get to jackson mm -hmm. right and if i am in drag that is a scary drive um to make because you're going through some counties that if you get stopped in as cheyenne was saying earlier it's the perception of the person who is pulling you over as to how they interpret the law right um, and that's that's very like gut wrenching to think about. Um, and as uh, a drag entertainer, I am a cisgender woman. Right. And so for me, my experience in there is going to be different than someone that may be trans um, or maybe a person of color, too, as well in that. And so it's 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 figuring out how to create um a, a space where people can feel safe because even as we were doing the uh phone banking like hearing some of the people's like experiences they were telling us like some of them hadn't left their home you know mm -hmm. when the bill got announced because they were afraid of how people were going to respond to them because as shahin was saying earlier when these bills do get introduced people who do have hate in their heart feel empowered to like 
put you in your place or whatever or call authorities on you or harass you Mm -hmm. um, because they're like, see, someone agrees with me, like what you're doing is wrong, you know, and it puts our community at risk. And so we have to look out for each other and in looking out for each other, we have to educate each other, too, as well in that. That's absolutely right. As a matter of policy and as a matter of practicality, we've seen it time and again where the just the chilling effects have real and detrimental impacts on and for our community. We saw it last year when library bans were really, book bans were really such a big deal. And one bill made it a certain length and then fizzled out and failed. And at the same time, one of our own municipal school districts here in Shelby County pulled books off the shelves, as the Commercial Appeal reported last year, even though the bill hadn't even become law. These issues about whether you are wearing, quote unquote, the right clothes, maybe won't maybe that's a triviality in some parts of Memphis. But are they a triviality in Murfreesboro? Are they a triviality in Jackson? You know, you have one individual who's interpreting this law in a discriminatory way. What is that going to mean for your experience in Smyrna or in Franklin? And we've seen that we cannot reliably depend on our state government, on our representatives to do two really basic things, to represent all members of their community and even administrative stuff. We've seen in Franklin, they went through a very vitriolic process just to pull a permit, to get a permit for them to be able to have their pride festival. And so when we're talking about such mundane things now becoming such a, you know, a real tenuous, a real uncertainty, that makes all of us in our community concerned, that that questions and threatens all of our safety. And that's why in, in the advocacy and bringing awareness to this and bringing light to what's been going on for years, I can only have hope that that continued momentum will help to move the needle because we've seen it with the expulsion votes that have happened in the past few weeks that people began to pay attention And while that has been a real point, I think, of of organizing for a lot of people, especially here in Shelby County and in Davidson County, I think that it also goes to show something like that was reversible. It was more easily reversible. When a bill becomes law, that's much more difficult to reverse. So being proactive, being aware of these situations, because there are a lot of reactionary forces out there that have no problem with our community not knowing what's going on until it's too late. And at that point, we can advocate all we want, but once the bill becomes law, now it's a matter of the courts, and we can't always depend on what's going to happen there. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, we have a quote from you, actually, from a, an article from the Commercial Appeal in January saying just that, saying that, you know, we have to do this before it becomes the law. We need to think proactively. And so, yes, there are still potential laws that could be in place that we can advocate and we can be proactive about thinking about some of the things that have already passed and now we are kind of in the wake of and you guys are going to be experiencing the impact on your work mm-hmm. where can listeners step in and and engage and um how can they support are there volunteer opp- opportunities you know what do you see as the most immediate need there i would say your voices right um but also educating your yourself, not expecting like like Cheyenne was saying, like they're passing these bills and making these decisions based upon you not knowing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. So educating yourself and empowering yourself with that knowledge is going to help you be in a better position to advocate for not only yourself, but for others, too, as well, because just some 
just because something is not happening to you does not mean that you shouldn't care because it is a ripple effect. These things may impact this one group, but that stuff is going to fall into all of our laps at some point in time. It's going to impact our way of life. And I think that the Tennessee Equality Project does an amazing job at putting things in terms that even the a layperson can pick it up and be like, okay, I understand. Like, this is what I can do. Like, pushing a button and like sending an email or doing a postcard or getting on the phone for like an hour and calling your representatives and telling them that you you do not agree with a bill that's coming through the pipeline um, that a committee may be looking at. And sometimes they need to hear other voices because they hear us all the time. (laughs) Right. Um, And so with that, like the more voices they hear, the more people that they know that this is impacting and like i said before we can't do it alone um because these are human rights that are being like attacked and in that we have to show up for each other that's exactly right that we are really all in this together and whether again as i think we'd mentioned earlier whether one identifies as part of this community or identifies as an ally or just as curious and trying to figure out what on earth is going on, it is really important that we not only have people who are engaged, you know, with kind of high, the high engagement that Phyllis and I share, where we're going to Nashville, we're getting on podcasts like this, where we're really being out in the community and the numbers, the people, whether you're pushing that button, you're making one or two phone calls, all of it is so, so critical. So regardless of your level of commitment or engagement, your voice matters. And hearing from you is so critical to so many of these elected officials and these lawmakers who have sat in their own caucuses or who have sat in their own echo chambers, and they haven't been hearing from people within their communities, business owners, you know, parents, teachers, everybody who plays a role in a community has a voice, and that voice can make such a big difference. And I think another piece that people should be empowered with is that they know, they know how things are going to affect their communities. And I'll, and I'll make an example. It was 10 years ago that our state passed a law that allowed for people to carry guns in their cars, right? Just unfettered the extension of that doctrine from your home to your car. And people here in Memphis and Shelby County have been saying, this is going to cause problems. People are going to be stealing guns out of cars. We're here 10 years later, and everybody's running around saying these guns are getting stolen out of cars. Businesses, right, are now having to consider when certain shifts have 30 windows busted out. Now these are workers who have to take time off of their work in order to get their windows fixed. Businesses who have to reconsider security and fencing or who they have to hire. This is impacting bottom lines. And I make that example to say, we're not done with this legislation. We're hot in the middle of it. By the time session comes around again early next year, there will be more bills. And that means at some point, something's going to give. We talk a lot about talent acquisition, talent development, and talent retention. And this state can have as many pro-business, pro-tax, pro-development policies as it wants. But if the workforce isn't there because they don't feel safe to work there, they are going to have to deal with that as a consequence. They can do something about it now. But if we keep passing these bills into law, 
Where are we going to be in five to 10 years? Is the workforce going to be there at Ford? Is the workforce going to be there across the state? Our lawmakers really need to think about that because this is not trivial. And the capriciousness that they put out is going to come home to roost. That's some impactful uh, context setting there. Um, And I see that Tennessee Equality Project does work both in the weeds and taking a 10,000 foot view of the issues that are coming down the pike. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little about about what success looks like when you're going through from both of those those angles? I know that's a big question. Sometimes it can be hard. When you're in the middle of session, sometimes you just feel like it's coming at you from all angles and you're you're drinking from a fire hose. But when you begin to see people really engage, when you're beginning to see those emails, those phone calls, those people saying, no, 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 this isn't right, whether they're part of members of the LGBTQIA community or not, when that groundswell is visible, that gives me a lot of hope. And from the success side, when I begin to see these bills start to stall out or when they start to fail, when they when they get muddied up and they're not being slammed through committees like we saw earlier this year, when I begin to see lawmakers question the real utility of these bills to say, is this really going to help Tennesseans? Is what you're proposing really a good idea? Maybe we need to table this. Maybe we need to stop and think. When I see those cooler heads in the room, and darn it, I know they're out there, that is what gives me the hope. Because so often we've seen members in our leadership do things that really destabilize people's thoughts. The the Speaker of the House capriciously said earlier this year, maybe we should leave a billion dollars of federal education funding on the table because maybe we should just do it our way. What do you think that does to businesses thinking about where their kids are going to go to school, right? Where their where their talent, where their workforce is going to, to, to relocate their families. We need those cooler heads in the room. We need people like the governor to speak up. And when I do see lawmakers step forward and do the right thing and say, wait a minute, let's think about this. To me, that's success. And I have to hope in five to ten years that those same lawmakers or ones that replace other lawmakers who may not be as cooler headed will say, wait a minute, is this going to move Tennessee forward? Is this going to help our economics? Is this going to help our citizenry? Is it going to boost our quality of life or is it not? And those are going to be the people who stop these bills and propose inclusive legislation that helps to lift us all up. To me, success is, in, is the engagement Success is the awareness, and success is seeing what better looks like on the other end. I love it. Where can yeah. folks find resources to better edu- educate themselves for your organization? They can start with Tennessee Equality Project at our website. Our website, tnep.org, has a great deal of information on the bills as they're moving from week to week and within session. Uh, if this uh, airs after session is over, people can go in there and see what's been going on because that will inform what will be coming later. I think that people can also get involved with the state's website, capitol.tn.gov, that's capital with an O, uh, so that people can figure out who their state-level elected officials are. The most basic thing that people can do is just get the information. And so often I'll ask people, I'll talk with them, well, who are your elected officials? And they'll give me a name of a congressperson or a U.S. senator. I'm like, well, that's great. That's a great first start. But people are very unaware of who represents their interest in Nashville. And the vast majority of law 
cut that affects our day-to-day lives doesn't come from our city council or county commission or from U.S. Congress. It comes from our state-level government. So even just getting started with who your people are, picking up the phone, especially after we gavel out a session, and say, hey, I'm your constituent. I've been seeing what's going on, and I want to develop a relationship with you so that you can hear me and my family and my lived experience that, I think, is what people can can really do to move the needle, is to get that information and build those relationships. Great. Love it. Phyllis, I'm going to ask the same thing of you. What are some immediate resources uh, that folks can access, and how can they reach you? Uh, so for us, um, they can use our website, um, lovedoesnthurt901.com. Uh, and then also for us, a lot of our educational sessions that are falling into those life hacks, um, we feed a lot of those into our Facebook. So that way the videos are always there. So even if you aren't able to catch them in real time, you're also able to come back and look at them at your own pace. Um, in regards to like any kind of awareness building, um, they can contact us directly at info at love doesn't hurt 901.com. Um, and we do consultations either in regards to the awareness building or looking and reviewing like different policies and procedures too as well. Great. Excellent. Those are excellent resources. Um, before we say goodbye, could you all share, um, this is a semi-personal, not too personal question, um, the fill your cup. You mentioned filling your cup, filling your own before you can help others. Do you have like a favorite way to do that here in Memphis? Is there something here in our great, great home of Memphis that you are like, this is how I fill my cup? I think for me, um, now the, I guess the pandemic brought it back. Um, my friends laugh at me all the time because I love Mexican pizzas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, um, my um, feeling of my cup is I like to get a Mexican pizza and go to Overton Park mm-hmm. and just listen to music in my car. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful and it it seems like something simple but like i i'm a believer that music feeds the soul and so i will select like five songs that mean something to me that remind me of a memory or an experience or empower or motivate me um and i will enjoy my mexican pieces because they're delicious of course (laughs) i'll second that (laughs) thank you here, here. I was also very glad when they brought back the Mexican pizza, but I, I'm going to really dovetail Phyllis off of what you just said. It's it's food that we have mm-hmm. so much amazing food in the city. It is the live music. And when I can go to a venue that I love and listen to a performer who I love, that is so recharging to me. And we have so many terrific nature connection opportunities. I'm a runner and being able to run through Especially now when all the trees are coming together, you have these tunnels of greenery that are just present on the Shelby Farms Green Line or in Overton Park or just so many of the other natural spaces that we have. That connection with nature, with our community, that is what really pours into my cup. And being intentional about that, that's what helps get me through this, I know, and I'm sure a lot of other people. Absolutely. I love that. What a great way to It's time wrap to go up. get a, a pizza. I'm ready. Get a pizza <laughs> yes. and go to the park, yeah. shall we? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you all so much for being here today and for the work that you do for our community. Well, thank you so much for inviting us um, into this space. We appreciate it. Sincerely, thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you.
I don't know about you, Jamie, but I am leaving this conversation inspired to learn. I think I have a little bit of brushing up to do on uh, civic education and civic knowledge, but it seems like we've got some great resources available to to do that. Yeah, I feel super inspired and um, <laughs> I share the same sentiment about I seriously need to brush up. I need to like grab my old government textbook from <laughs> seventh grade and um, brush up on some things. But yeah, I, I feel very hopeful. Very hopeful. And and if you don't want to grab your textbook, uh, Shahin mentioned uh, right after we got off of the, the microphones here that they mm. actually have some opportunities coming up for us to learn about civic education. Um, so you can head to their website and learn a, bit, a little bit more about that for Tennessee Equality Project. Um, speaking of learning, New oh. Memphis. Oh, oh, what a transition. <laughs> <laughs> New Memphis will host a teacher's lounge on May 2nd at Fancy's Fish House. This event is a casual and safe space for teachers uh, in the pre-K through 12 grades to converse with with each other. This event is a casual and safe space to converse with other pre-K through 12 teachers from around the city to discuss pressing topics in today's education landscape and grow together. Each conversation will be a unique opportunity and food and drinks will always be provided, which I think we're all a big fan of. Yes. This one will be particularly exciting as we will see uh, tease some of the giveaways giveaways teachers Ooh. that we're going to have during teacher appreciation week the week of may 8th through the 12th so stay tuned for that and fancies is delicious can't go wrong <laughs> uh, also coming up uh, make sure you join us on may 16th for a happy hour um it's gonna this is gonna be part of our celebrate what's right series called culture city usa and um I'm super excited about the folks that are going to be here. This is going to be at the FedEx Center at Shelby Farms Park. Um, The event is going to be hosted by Kanji Anthony, founder and CEO of Udall. And our panelists are David Quarles IV, interior designer and jewelry designer. Tara Stringfellow, who is a novelist. She's the author of Memphis. Uh, Kevin Thomas, the artistic director of Collage Dance Collective. Esso Tolson, a multidisciplinary artist. And Pat Mitchell-Worley, CEO of Soulsville Foundation. Of course, we are so thankful to our generous sponsors of this event, First Horizon Foundation and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee. So if you're interested in getting your tickets, check out the event on our website, newmemphis.org slash events. And we hope to see you there. This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com.